So to give you an idea of where we are going with this morning's text, as different as these two paragraphs seem to be at first glance, they clearly together illustrate the absolute necessity of responding to Jesus in faith. That it's simply not enough to reform the outside of a person, but we need the deep inner change that only God can provide. Let us illustrate what we mean beginning by reflecting back on verse 43. That says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Now, it's so important to understand the main point of this passage isn't to discuss demonology, the mechanics and principles of how demons operate in the world or the spiritual realm. And if if you get too focused on trying to figure out sub-points that the Bible alludes to as you're reading a text, you might miss the main point of a text. I certainly know that's happened to me over the years. So, And in passages like this, it's easier than others. But rather, Jesus is sharing this as, as a parable, if you will, trying to fi- uh, on trying to figure a parable to display the seriousness of rejecting Jesus and the danger of only focusing on the outward moral reform that so many others seek to do and stop there. (laughs) However, by using this as an example, by referencing this unclean spirit, Jesus affirms that demon possession is a real phenomenon. It's not just a cultural superstition that existed in the first century. People laugh at passages like this when they read it in today's times. And they say that, oh, demon possession, Christians just use that as an excuse because they didn't understand epilepsy. Or they didn't understand brain chemistry or ophthalmology with blindness and other various problems demons supposedly created in the New Testament. But yet Jesus affirms here, you know, At least some of those conditions were caused by demons and possessions and things of that sort. So as I have posed in the past, I pose again, I know whom I have believed. The question is, do we? Now, for clarity, you know, is anything in this text suggesting that every case of epilepsy is caused directly by demons? No nor any other infirmity caused exclusively by demons. So that's not what the Bible argues. It's a straw man case, what atheists uh, supposedly accuse us of supposedly believing. But this does imply that at least in the first century, at least some of the time, that was the cause. We ought to be aware of that. Because throughout history, Satan has flourished, ironically, through two opposing lies that he has imposed upon the world. The first is that he is much more powerful than he actually is. I'm sure you've known somebody who thought that there was a demon in every shadow, a demon lurking under every area of the house, or thought that rock music or anything with a beat was of the devil. I certainly hope you weren't that person. 
because that's believing that Satan is a lot more powerful or a lot more present than he actually is. But the second one is perhaps more sinister. The second lie he does is convincing people he doesn't exist at all or downplays his role to such a degree that Christians aren't even aware of what he is up to and what his schemes are. And I firmly believe that that is the main tactic that Satan and his minions are, have deployed upon the unsuspecting West that is increasingly atheistic and increasingly unaware of the spiritual realm at all. Because I believe if we were even slightly more aware of the spiritual battles that take place every day around us, I mean, we would pray without ceasing all right. We'd be far more engaged spiritually. We probably wouldn't even leave our house until we really have made sure to make time to meet with God and pray every day. But because right now is exactly where Satan wants us, spiritually disengaged, unaware of the things going on in this world in the spiritual realm, trying to find all the explanations in the natural before we realize, no, there, there is a satanic influence in a lot of the nonsense going on in this world today. And once you start thinking about it, we start to make some of those connections. Because look, even in the practical daily life of the Christian, Satan delights in prayerless outreaches. He delights in prayerless ministries. He has no fear of a prayerless pulpit, of a sermon prepared without any prayer going into it. Because look, he's no fool, as we've said. He knows that if somebody were to come in this front door right now, screaming, hooting, and hollering, clearly possessed, that would only wake up the church, make us aware of what's going on spiritually. So we ought not, when we see passages like this that refer to unclean spirits and demon possessions, we ought not write that off as something that, oh, that used to happen just in the first century. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. There's a reason why the writers of the New Testament wrote about spiritual warfare. It is a reality. We ought not downplay it. But regarding this particular incident, we're not told how or why this particular person got free of this demon in the first place. My educated guess, and that's all that it is, is that he was exercised out of him because that's what Jesus did in verse 22 of this same chapter. But again, I'm not sure. And these things seem to prefer some kind of bodily indwelling, either people or animals. We saw that in, with the incident of legion and the pigs back in chapter 8. Perhaps that's why this particular one can't find any rest, since, uh, but since that's not the point of this passage, I can't be sure. <laughs> Same thing with this line about waterless places. I'm really not sure what that line is. I've read every commentary. Nobody's convinced me what that verse actually means. But whatever the reason might be, this unclean spirit decides to return to its original dwelling in verse and we pick up in verse 44, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil 
generation. So it appears that in the absence of this evil influence, this person has gotten their life together, as we might say. Implied from that line about being their life being swept and in order. It's, it's a metaphor of their life, of them being kind of collected and together, as opposed to whatever this thing was doing to the, the poor guy beforehand. Perhaps the equivalent of today it would be something like breaking free of addictions, breaking free of your bad habits, getting started on a new career, going back to school, something like that, getting your life outwardly together. But it says here the person, the house, or the person, that's what it's symbolically referencing here, was also empty, unoccupied. The point is unguarded. Now, they, they might have gotten their outward life together visibly, but they didn't have the power to keep it that way. There was nothing stopping this thing from coming back and apparently making things far worse. As now there are seven of these things, the biblical number of completions showing, symbolically referencing what a complete mess they've made out of this poor man's life. So, so my friends, this, is, this highlights that it's not enough to turn from those bad habits or to clean and sweep up our own lives in that collective sense. That's not enough. It absolutely matters who we turn to for the remedy of those things. Or it perhaps could only get worse. Because the person who follows Jesus, the person who has given their life to Christ, doesn't have the problem that this man has. Because a demon cannot possess a Christian. Because their dwelling isn't empty. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, From the moment that you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit has dwelt within you. You're not unoccupied. Moreover, 1 John 4 4 says, He who is within you, that's the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is within the world. Referencing Satan and his, you know, his unclean spirits like this. Now, that doesn't mean that a Christian isn't going to have any problems. That doesn't mean that a Christian isn't going to sin or fall into temptation. Because we all do. But it means that we have all the power we could ever possibly need to resist that temptation. Because the Holy Spirit is within us. And we forget sometimes we don't have a fragment of the Holy Spirit. We don't have just a little bitty piece of him. Because even math doesn't work that way. What happens when you divide infinity by six? You have infinity. It's still that way. That's how math works. So when you divide, you can't divide up an infinite God into itty bitty pieces. You have the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And that's going to be powerful enough to resist any temptation, any demonic influence, or anything hindering you in this lifetime from living the life that God has called us to live. That's a word of encouragement. I know it is for me. And let me be straight with you guys. There's lots of, there's lots of preachers these days that don't talk about resisting sin resisting temptation or and they won't talk about 
sin, repentance, or even our need for redemption these days. They'll just talk about bad habits that you want to fix in your life or things that you want to change in your own life. Bad habits, influences, things like that. So please know, I have bad habits that need fixing is not the gospel. That's this surface level moral reform that we're talking about in this passage. The gospel is, I'm a sinner in need of redemption, not I have some bad habits that I need to work harder on, not I have some bad habits that need fixing. These are two different things. And to make your spirituality about cleaning up some of these bad habits, getting a better career, making better decisions, is not the gospel. If that's the extent of what your spirituality is, if that's what you've come to church for, if that's what you read your Bible for, you have put the cart before the horse. It's like giving you the keys to, it's like giving you a car, but without giving you the keys to drive it. Yeah, the thing's in your possession, but you can't use it. Or worse, in this example of, you know, cleaning up your life, Maybe you do get some success in cleaning up the outward stuff. But you face nothing but judgment in the next life because you didn't clean up the inside. Jesus accused the Pharisees of doing just that, washing the outside of a cup, but not washing the inside. You know, the part that matters. So, by the way, please hear me, saints. I'm not preaching against self-improvement. I'm not saying stay stuck in your bad habits. (laughs) Because look, I got pastors and mentors that speak into my own life and help me to be a better father, to be a better Christian, to be a better husband, to be a better minister. I have people speaking into my own life in that regard. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just saying I don't confuse that with the gospel. As regretfully, many people, even people who stand behind pulpits on a Sunday morning, sometimes confuse. And those are the more dangerous ones because you think you're getting the gospel, but you're not. Nor are any of these reasons the reason why we come to Jesus in the first place. You, you don't come to Jesus to live a better life. You don't come to Jesus because you want to be more positive or be a more moral person to make better decisions in your life. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. That's the reason we come to him in faith, to receive him, to receive the God of the universe, to enjoy a relationship with him, to have the greatest need of our soul's redemption be met in him. That's why we come to him. And by pursuing the God who did all of that for us with everything we've got, it's the overflow of that relationship that begins to take care of the rest of those things. The beginning, the foundational step of all of that self-improvement stuff has to begin with Jesus. And again, I'm not saying that's the end of it, but that is the beginning. But moving forward, this, this, this next paragraph shows us really what the gospel does, that it doesn't just change your habits It changes who you are fundamentally. We see that in verse 46 that says, 
while he was still speaking to to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. And whoa, whoa, whoa. All of the ex-Catholics in the room just had a shock. (laughs) Didn't you? Wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Jesus had brothers? Certainly this cannot be true. (laughs) We were taught that, you know, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, remaining celebrated even after marriage. He can't have brothers. What? This must be a mistake. There's a mistake that's been made all right, but it's not the biblical text. I can assure you of that. This is the danger of elevating other people's traditions up to the same level of Scripture. Because when you start having that, you will end up with constant contradictions and problems like the one we just ran into. (laughs) Because the Bible says that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived, but there is no biblical or theological reason why she had to stay that way. At least not after she married Joseph. So, this, this is the danger of it. And people get so wrapped up in these theological systems that have no rooting in the gospel that they get confused and they end up rejecting Christianity as a whole because of weird nonsense like this. Now, when I was, when I was pursuing my undergrad, I was evangelizing on the campus and this one guy came up to me when, we were, when I was with the, this group that was out evangelizing around campus. And he comes up to us confidently saying, here's why I don't believe in God. There is no way Mary remained a virgin the rest of her. That doesn't even make sense to me. And I had to try not to laugh. So, but eventually I composed myself enough to be able to, to, to say to the guy, you know, I actually agree with you. I agree that that doesn't make sense. But in the Bible, we have a record of Jesus having brothers and sisters. So as a Protestant who believes my Bible, I actually don't have a problem with that. And he just kind of stared at me. He wasn't expecting that response. Uh, okay. Then he just kind of walked away from there. The conversation kind of ended rather abruptly. Because that's not the reason he didn't believe in God. That's... That's the reason why, that's the surface level reason he's rejecting maybe some of his traditions growing up, and maybe he's figured out some points along the way. But no, it's a, it's, it's a, deep, it's a deeper thing than that. Most people see through that. But that's, that's how much people are stumbled over things like this. <laughs> it is notable, though, that his earthly father, Joseph, is not listed here as the, the scholarly consensus is that Joseph would have already passed away at this point, which is why there's no other account of him after Jesus' adolescence. So he probably passed away at this point, and Jesus is now, as the firstborn son in charge of the family, being the provider for them, which is important to note as we move into these next couple of verses, as we consider how Jesus responds to this request of his mother and brothers That might surprise us in verse 48, where it said, He replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister 
and mother. Now, my Catholic friends, as I was just referring to, they pray to the saints, as many of you are aware of, believing that they have some kind of influence over Jesus, that they don't have the confidence to approach God directly in prayer. But maybe I can talk to Mary. Maybe I can talk to Peter. I can talk to one of those guys, and they can put in a good word to Jesus for me. It's a simplified version of what they believe. and But... It doesn't seem like they have much influence in this text at all, does it? At all. In fact, Jesus even sounds a little bit rude at first glance. What gives? Just not even acknowledging their request. No, no, here are my brother and sisters and mother. Well, context is important. Mark 3 also recounts this moment. And it it tells us that the family had attempted to seize Jesus at this same time, believing that he was out of his mind, they said. And and because John 7, 5 says that Jesus' brothers at this time had not yet believed in him, although later of them would, James and Jude notably, But there's a reason why he responded this way, because even his own family had not yet responded in faith. So what this passage does clearly teach is that even Mary does not have some kind of special privilege or influence over Jesus. But those who are part of the kingdom of God those who do believe in them, those who have committed to follow our Savior, do have this unique privilege of being the true part of his family. And it's not something that you earn. It's not something you are sanctified into. It is part of the new identity he has given you, that he has bought for you by adopting you into the family. That that the minute that you became a Christian, you became, in the eyes of God, as sinless and pure as the most godly person you know. And because it's not you that makes you holy. It's not your goodness. It's not your works, as we read in Galatians, that justifies you. It's God's imputed righteousness in you that makes you holy. It is Christ in you that has sanctified you and made you holy and pure before God. Because if we had to wait until our outward actions were pure, oh, we'd all be doomed. Oh, none of us are getting in if it's up to us. Myself included. But it's what he has done for us. And look, we're going to grow into that identity over time. Nobody arrives at first. But again, it's, it's a process of the outward working of the sanctification, changing the outside. But that work on the outside has begun because the work on the inside is already complete. There aren't any second-class citizens in the kingdom of God that because of their actions are lesser than or less holy than or less acceptable in God's eyes than because of our outward actions. That's why Paul could write to the Corinthian church, as messed up as they were in 1 Corinthians, as waist-deep in shameful sin as the Corinthians were, he, Paul writes to them and calls them Saints, 
How fascinating is this? Notice he's writing to living people, not dead people in stained glass windows. He's writing to people alive who are struggling with their sins, much like we are. And he calls them saints. If you believe the gospel this morning, you are a saint. Did you know that? That's because that's what a saint is, someone who believes the gospel and has been washed clean of their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that qualifier of the blood of Christ that has been over you, you have access to the throne of grace, just like supposed saints do, that you can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy in your hour of need, as Hebrews 4 tells us. Because it's not a privilege you have earned. It is a grace. It is a gift that has been given to you. That we don't need this complex system of going through the saints to have our prayers heard. We can go right to Jesus ourselves. Because he has qualified us by the gift of his grace. Because that's what we are as saints. In-house today we have saints. In-house today, we got St. Ruth over here. <laughs> We've got St. Madhu, St. Judy. Oh, help us, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. But we got St. Mary. <laughs> oh, that one's going to get me in trouble later. <laughs> but it's true. There's nothing wrong with what I just said. If you believe the gospel this morning, you are a saint. You have access to God. You are part of his family. As Jesus said, here are my mother, my sisters, my brothers. This is my family. These are the people I want to hear from. These are the people I am meeting with. These are the people I'm not going to go leave and abandon. This is my family. (laughs) Because as I tell my kids, and you guys can quote, you guys can vouch for me, you're either a saint or you ain't. It's as simple as that. So maybe, maybe as I'm saying this, maybe this is something you have struggled with. Maybe this is something, maybe you know internally, I know Jesus loves me. Yes, I know it's the blood of Jesus. We sing that hymn, you know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I get it, I get it. But internally, you still say to yourself, but John, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the ways I've fallen short. You don't know the sins I still struggle with. You know, this can't be me, realistically. But And let me tell you, I don't know your situation. But I do know my Savior. I do know the gospel. And I do know that it's the blood of Jesus that has washed us clean from all sin and made us all pure. As a hymn that we love to sing here says, his blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. And if, the, if Paul, the chief of sinners, can say that the blood of Christ has availed for him despite persecuting the church, I don't need to know what you have done. I know that my Savior has arms open wide ready to receive you if you haven't come to him already. That is why it's not enough to just clean up our act. Because the privileges 
before God that I'm talking to you guys about are, are not available to those who just clean up their outward act. This comes from having the inner renewed. You know, morality, following the law, trying to keep all the rules, that will not fundamentally change who you are. But the gospel does. Being part of the family of God does. That is more than enough. Because if all we do is beautify the outside, how we present ourselves, those bad habits we were talking about, our posture, whatever, we're still spiritually in bad shape. And we are no better than the Pharisees who Jesus called whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, gorgeous things on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones, full of death. There is no life in those whitewashed tombs, but there is in the church of God. So rather, let us, let the great call of the church be to be changed from the inside out by our Lord Jesus, letting his Holy Spirit create in us that clean heart, making us that new creation. And as we walk in this new nature he has given us, the outside will slowly change too. All in the right time, all in the right order, and all in the right power. Thanks be to God. Amen.